It's been my great privilege to be married into a family with southern roots, but I have trouble remembering my very large southern family, uh, their names, because most of them have a nickname, and that creates an exponential challenge to an in-law. It's just a lot to remember. So the family will be talking, and I have to say, well, now who's Rosetta? Well, that's Poonie. <laughs> uh, I know her as Poonie, so I'm like, okay, yeah, but who's Jessie? Well, that's Poonie, because her real name is Jessie Rosetta. So they call her those three names. And who's Blokey? Well, that's Uncle Herbie. But who's Splokey? Well, that's Uncle Herbie, too. Well, who's Blinky Bill? Well, that's Uncle Herbie, too. That's just very confusing to me because Uncle Herbie is Blinky Bill, but he has a brother whose name is Bill, so there's also an Uncle Bill. You see my problem? It's just a lot. Nicknames. Anyone here want to tell us their nickname? Thumper. Thumper. Roland Wiley. Yeah, I remember when you got that nickname. Yes, Marianne? Tilly, okay. And Jojo, that's Brenda. Jojo, Terry. What? H E Heva. Heva and Tiva. Okay. Yes, Barbara. Bubkins. Bobbykins. Bobby Kins. Yes, Clayton. <laughs> Babe? Okay. Well, why did you let that one out of the bag? Because that's a very tempting one. My brother called me Constanza Pierna Panza, which means constant leg stomach. I have no idea. It just rhymed. <laughs> What does your name say about you? What does your nickname say about you? Our passage today is loaded with names and titles and one nickname. The latter will probably not strike us as a nickname, but it was an unusual one at the time. And every name, every title, every nickname has, uh, is packed with meaning. So we're in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? We are in a sermon series entitled, Our Bible, the Question Book. And Jesus seems to have asked more questions than he answered. When people would ask him a question, he'd often ask them a question back. And we are moving now into the New Testament portion of our series. And today we're looking at questions asked by Jesus. Who do people say that I am is the first question in the passage, but the second question will be more important. Son of Man is a way that Jesus referred to himself. It's an Old Testament title, but it's not loaded with political or cultural assumptions. The way other titles carried baggage, Messiah carried a lot of baggage. That title put a lot of erroneous ideas into people's head, like military conquest or political leader. And Jesus preferred the more neutral title of Son of Man. So Jesus is here with his tight-knit group of disciples, and he asks, he's asking, what do people say about me? 
it's a pretty bold question, you know. Uh, you know people talk about you behind your back. It, and it doesn't even have to be mean. It doesn't have to be gossipy. Oh, I met Connie at the grocery store. Well, who is she? She's that white lady. It can be like a physical descriptor, you know. Which one? Oh, she has two daughters. That's a role, the role of mother. Or it can go into a different direction. You know, she's the one who makes cakes for special occasions. Now, I put all neutral things into that imaginary discussion about myself behind my back. But I'm sure that people have said negative things about me behind my back because I've actually done, this must shock you, I've maybe done one or two negative things in my life. No. Yeah, I'm sorry, to, I just have to be honest. And also just because, you know, people are people and some people are negative people and they're just going to talk negatively. So do we want to know about the conversations people are having about us? I'm not sure that I do. But Jesus wanted to know what were people saying and he wasn't asking what were people saying about him. He wasn't asking about physical description, although, you know, I'm very curious, was he short? Was Jesus short, really, in real life? Or was he like a little chubby? Or, I think he walked maybe a little bit too much for that. How dark-skinned was he really? Because we know he wasn't my shade at all. Uh, so, the Bible doesn't go anywhere near that kind of physical description because what does it matter what he looked like? And what does it matter what we look like? I have great hopes for this uh, new generation that you are going to break the curse of people assigning value to physical appearances. This is your job. Break that chain off of us. I've been waiting for that one for a long time. What does it matter what we look like? No, Jesus is asking an identity question. Who do people say that I am? Now, obviously, he was a very unusual man. He had a lot of leadership qualities to the point where lots and lots and lots of people listened to him and learned from him. People followed him. He had done some amazing signs and wonders, and the countryside was abuzz about it. He treated people differently than social norms would call for. He ate with sinners. He touched lepers who had cooties, and he didn't seem to mind pay too much mind to the cleanliness rituals, uh, strictures that the law had worked out to exclude people. So he was different, so very different. Jesus asked this first question, the specific identity question, to bring up the topic and to get to his second question, which is coming up, which is more important. But to his first question, the disciples answered in verse 14, they said, some say, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So this puts Jesus in a top echelon. John the Baptist had been killed already by Herod, so that would imply some kind of resurrection or so. I don't know how that would work. Elijah was a prophet who never died. He was just taken up to heaven in a whirlwind or in a chariot of fire. Jeremiah was a prophet of gloom. I always think about Eeyore when I hear his name. He could get people, people, God's people to turn back to God. All the prophets were sent by God to speak God's words to the people. They were influential leaders that God used. 
They all belong to this transcendent sphere close to God. And it would have been an honor to be thought of in that company. But for Jesus, it was a demotion. Matthew 16, 15, Jesus said to them, but who do you all say that I am? That's the second question. And that's the more, more important one that he is still asking today. Who do you all say that I am? And then Simon Peter spoke up for the group. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. The Greek word there is the Christ, the son of the living God. There's two titles in that answer. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's his official legal name. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. There's the nickname. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now the way this incident is talked about in the Gospel of Mark, which we did not read, Peter's identification of Jesus as the Messiah was a dramatic first time, like curtains pulling open, unveiling, revealing who Jesus really was. The first time a disciple really recognized Jesus. But in the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples had all worshipped him before when he was walking to them on the water in a storm. And he got into the boat. They fell down and worshipped him there. So the reader, we're reading along in Matthew, we already know who Jesus is, his identity. But in Matthew, the verses about Peter are added. And so that's sort of the focus. And I want to dwell on what comes along with a confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. When we confess Jesus as Savior, what do we get in return? The Jewish people were looking for their Messiah. They had many people before Jesus declare that they were the sent one of God, the true anointed one, the Messiah. But seeing Jesus in that light as Messiah is not a matter of applying logic, of thinking critically, of checking off boxes. Born in Bethlehem, check. Perform many miracles, check. Authoritative teachings, check. Plenty of people had seen those check marks and had not come to the conclusion that Peter had. So human intuition and human intelligence, human recognition can take you to the very edge of faith, the very edge, right up to the line. But to confess that Jesus is the Savior is the next step over the line. It's a step into faith. And the ability to take that step comes only as a gift from the Father. Jesus says that the recognition of who he is cannot come from a human basis. Only the Father can reveal the Son. Faith happens on a spiritual dimension and only the Holy Spirit can grant faith to our human spirit. You are, Peter said, he didn't say, well, I've been thinking, I kind of think that you might be the Messiah. He doesn't say, well, people come up to me all the time and ask me who you are, and I say, in my opinion, you are the Messiah. No, you are the Messiah. A clear 
unambiguous, outright declaration of Jesus' true identity. You are the son of the living God, Peter said. The son of God in the highest sense. The son of God in the divine sense. Have you experienced this step of faith? Receiving the gift of faith, confessing Jesus, brings a fullness to us, a completion, a fulfillment that open, only happens when we reach for God and when we touch him. And then we discover he's been reaching to us all along. There are many right questions to the question Jesus asked, many right answers. Who do you think that I am? Someone could say Jesus is a historical figure, that would be true. Someone could say Jesus was a remarkable teacher, that would be true. Someone could say Jesus turned the world upside down, and that would be true. But there's only one right answer that leads to faith. Jesus is the Messiah. God's Son, sent to be our Savior. Have you received this gift of faith? The second gift that Peter receives upon his confession of faith and by extension all his followers is a blessing. The first words out of Jesus' mouth when Peter said, you are the Messiah. The first words Jesus said are, blessed are you. That Greek word has a, an extension on it, kind of like the I-E-R in English. So we can be happy, but we can be happier. And who doesn't want more of a good thing? And that prolonged form of blessing is there in the Greek. So it's more than just blessed, it's supremely blessed. You are supremely blessed, Peter. It's a beatitude. That's the same word that is translated beatitude in Matthew 5. And some people have translated this word as happy are you. Happiness is such an important human aspiration that it got included in the preamble to our Declaration of Independence, that we are endowed with inalienable rights from our Creator among them, our life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that good of a state of being is enshrined in the founding of our nation. We yearn to be happy. But I am saying to you today that happy is too small a word for the blessing that comes to you when you take that step of faith. Happiness is included, but, but much, much more is implied. When we confess Jesus, we are favored. Our souls are well off. We are fortunate. We are smiled upon by God. We are supremely blessed by Jesus. That step of receiving the gift of faith in God is immediately followed by a wellspring of blessing poured over us. Now Peter was talking to Jesus face to face. And Peter got to see what was in Jesus' eyes when he said those words. Blessed are you, Simon. Was Jesus smiling when he said it? Did he put a hand on Peter's shoulder? Did he give him a big hug? Did they chest bump? I hear men in those days chest bumped. Or is that us? We can't have that kind of a physical encounter with Jesus, but we can hear his voice today saying, blessed are you, Connie. 
Say that to yourself with your name. Blessed are you, Connie, from Jesus. Have you received this gift of blessing? It isn't a one-time gift. We get to receive it over and over again. And since Peter was the first disciple who spoke up, he gets a special nickname and a special role in what was coming next. And I tell you, Peter, verse 18 says, I tell you, you are Peter. That's the nickname. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now, somewhere in the origin story, Clayton told us who gave him his nickname. There's someone who gives us our nickname. That's an important detail in our story. Peter's name wasn't Peter until Jesus gave him that nickname. At this point in their journey together, they'd been together two and a half years or more at this point. Everyone else up to that point knew him as Simon. Even when we're introduced to Peter at the beginning of Matthew, he is called Simon, who is called Peter. Because at that point, nobody knew him by Peter. But the writer, by the time the writer was writing, everybody knew him as Peter. And also there was another one of the 12 disciples who was named Simon, so we had to differentiate between them. The other one was Simon the Zealot. That was his nickname. But after the Gospels are written, Peter became a legitimate name. And we have a wonderful Peter in our own congregation right here. But there is no written record in Aramaic or Greek at the time that has Peter as a legitimate name. It just wasn't a name. So we could understand this verse better if we called Peter the stone or the rock. No, not that rock. That's Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Oh, not that wonderful rock. That's Peter Larson. That rock. The first Peter. Verse 18 says, And I tell you, Simon, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Oh, there are so many divergent ideas about this verse, including a centuries-long dispute between Protestants and Roman Catholics on whether Jesus was instituting the supremacy of the papacy with Peter given superior power as the first pope, a power that he can pass on to successive popes. That's the Roman Catholic view. Protestants, by contrast, said Peter was given a one-time, unique, unrepeatable role in the founding of the new faith community. There is fierce disagreement on what this rock means. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build the church. Does it refer to Peter? Is Peter the foundation stone of the church upon whom 3,000 stones were added in the day of Pentecost and all the living stones of the Gentiles and Cornelius were added later on and all of us followers of Jesus since? Or is Peter's confession of the Messiah the stone? On this stone, on this confession of faith, the church will be built. Or is Jesus the rock? In the Old Testament, God is the rock. And elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus is called the rock a lot of times a stumbling stone, a cornerstone, a headstone, a spiritual rock he's called. So the idea would be that you are Peter, a piece of the rock, but Jesus himself, on this rock, Jesus, I will build my church. Well, those are all discussions of that verse. 
but Jesus himself is the rock. Yes, that rock there. Regardless of the way in which we answer those questions, everybody agrees that Peter's confession means that he is instrumental then in establishing the new faith community. And regardless of Peter's special role, all of us, even if we were not instrumental in establishing the foundation of the church, each of us who confess Jesus as Savior receive in addition a faith community, a church community. Jesus called it a church here. Now the church has come under severe criticism and much of it is deserved. But think back to the time when Jesus said these words and Peter and the other disciples heard it from his mouth. They were so few in number. And Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against, against it. Twelve men present when he said that. And they received an impossible sounding, an out of proportion promise. It's just crazy sounding. They were on a dusty road in Caesarea Philippi, which was a powerhouse of Roman rule. And it was a powerhouse of pagan worship. And they were 12 measly men. Can we call them measly men? Receiving this promise. Jesus will build his church. <coughs> Peter's role is not as the builder of the church, flesh and blood will not build this church. Physical bricks and stones will not build this church. Pastor George and Pastor Connie will not build this church. I will build my church. Jesus is the builder. It isn't Peter's church. It belongs to Jesus. And our Savior builder will build this church so secure, so strong, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. These are the gates of hell. This is Rodin's sculpture. It's on the campus of Stanford University. So we went to look at it and we spent a lot of time looking at the details of the demons and stuff coming out of the door. Uh, but Hades is not hell. Hades is a place where the dead go. It's not hell in the way we think of it. What can and does take us out? It's death in the end. We have no control over it. But Jesus is saying death has no power over his church. And this is not a triumphalistic statement. When the church is powerful, when the church is triumphant, when the church is successful in culture, it actually weakens in faith. Because who needs faith when you're successful and powerful? It's not about us taking the battle to the gates of Hades, but rather it's a church withstanding the forces of death hurled against it. Think about the forces of death hurled against the doors of the church. What comes to your mind? There are so, so many of them. It's hard to know where even to start. We're in an era in the U.S. where young adults are dropping out of the church in alarming rates. Many, many churches are struggling with that. And if our church does not bring our life-giving Savior, Jesus Christ, to our young people, and if the ways that we do church no longer work in our culture, and if the programs we depend on 
do not have the same impact, we have got to rethink and reimagine Jesus' church in order to reach our community. Because it is not about us, it is about Jesus, the way to the Father. Jesus, the truth when disinformation swirls all around us. Jesus, the life when we are sucked dry by living in these hard times. Jesus, the eternal life who carries us past death and into his precious presence. It just pulls at us to change. It stretches us. And Jesus may have to take his church, kicking and screaming, into the future. But the promise is that the church will survive and flourish because Jesus is the builder and the sustainer. And the power of death will not prevail against it. In a divided society, it is impossible to heal our divides. But for Christ. What we want to accomplish as a church is simply impossible, but for Christ. We do not have the resources, but for Christ. Christ's church will never die and no forces of death will prevail against his church. And what a gift it is to receive a faith community. Learning together, worshiping together, struggling together, celebrating together, praying for each other, loving each other. And when all of that becomes hard work, because love is sometimes hard work, we have the divine strength of Jesus Christ, who promised those 12 measly men that he would build his church, and nothing can prevail against it. Have you received this gift of community? Oh, the wonderful gifts we receive when we confess Jesus as our Savior. Faith, blessing, and community. And if you have already received those gifts, receive them again today. And if you haven't, this is your opportunity to receive that from Jesus. Won't you ask God for that first step of faith? in order to receive them today. We're going to say, I believe, we're going to say it together. And if this is true of you, that you believe, let's um, say it all together. If it's true to your heart, say it out loud. This is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was, by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he was raised again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the 
the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Dear Jesus, you heard the words from our heart, but more importantly, you heard the words that we can't even say when we reach out to you. Please give us the gift of faith, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of blessings, the gift of community, God. We pray for these. We are before you with our hands open, ready to receive, acknowledging you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, you, Jesus, as Messiah, you, Jesus, as Son of the living God. We praise you, and in your name we pray. Amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.